This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again, if you are listening. If you are not listening, I don't know how you're hearing me talk about this, but you know what? You're doing fine, too. Do what you have to do. Come back, listen to the show another time. For all of you who are listening, welcome to the show. So happy that you're here. I want to remind you that if you want to support the show, you can join my brand new Patreon community at patreon.com slash Conover. And if you do, You'll get access to bonus podcast episodes and our community book club. That's right. We're all going to be reading a book together and gabbing about it. Our first selection is Four Lost Cities by Anna Lee Newitz, an incredible book about four ancient civilizations and the mysterious truths they have to teach us. And when we get together to discuss it, Anna Lee themselves will be joining us. We will be chatting with the author on our Patreon. If you want to join that conversation, sign up at patreon.com slash Adam Conover. And thank you once again for supporting the show. Now, let's talk about today's episode. You know, like a lot of kids, I was pretty dissatisfied with the real world growing up. You know, I was like... This place sucks. Everyone's always yelling at me. I can't do a lot of things. I'm very short. I don't like it here. So I spent a lot of my time elsewhere. I loved books. I loved computers. And especially, I loved Nintendo. It was really great when I was dissatisfied with the real world to enter an alternate reality in which I could jump super high, kill some mushrooms, and gain fire powers. It was awesome. But, you know, there wasn't necessarily a lot to those early virtual worlds. You know, I knew that in Super Mario Brothers World 1-1 was a sunny place with some blocks and that 1-2 had more of a dank underground dungeon vibe. But, you know, no matter what level you were on, there wasn't a lot of conversation with the Koopa Troopas. You know, you weren't really, you didn't really place yourself there. Interactions with the world were pretty simple, bound by very simple game logic. But this all changed when I got the internet. Because then I could finally experience a virtual world that felt, in some ways, more stuffed with possibility than the real world. When my family got our precious AOL membership, whoo 
boy, I burned through a lot of those free hours in chat rooms, forums, social spaces with real people where I wasn't tethered to my physical form or that of an obscure Italian employment stereotype. Instead, I could just be a screen name and I was whoever I wanted to be in that conversation. But the virtual world that had the strongest pull on me was a place called Lambda Moo. Yes, my children, sit around the fire as Grandpapa Adam tells you about Lambda Moo. I know it's a weird name. Let me explain. Lambda Moo was a text-based, multi-user social virtual world. Imagine an old text adventure where you'd be in a room and the room would be described by text. There would be exits. You could go to other rooms. But instead of just you and a computer, there were other people there. They were logged in too. And all of you, everyone who was logged in, could program new objects, new rooms, new places that could look, act, or behave any way that you wanted them to. It was a space where your creativity could run wild. And I got so into it. I created a character for myself. I created a home that was a tiny bottle full of mist that was placed in a bar area in the space. And you could go into it. You could look at the bottle. You could shake it. When you shook it, you would see me rattle around inside. And then you could shrink down and enter it. This incredible fantasy that emerged just from my own mind and my little my little 13-year-old computer finger like typing code into a Telnet session. It was fucking incredible. And I made real friends there, friends who would visit the spaces I created and whose spaces I would visit and play around in. We formed real connections at 1 a.m. staring at that white on black text, but we felt like we really knew each other. And here's the coolest thing. Lambda Moo is still there. Nearly 30 years later, my user account is still there, and all those places that I created as a kid still exist. And once a year, I log in just to, you know, make sure my character doesn't get deleted in a, in a periodic purge, and I go look at these places that I created when I was a child. These objects that meant a lot to me, messages that my friends wrote me way back when, in the mid-90s. I go visit it, and I remember who I was at that time. I'm connected with a past version of myself by visiting that place. In other words, Lambda Moo was a real place to me and still is. The day that those servers are finally turned off, and I hope they never are, but the day they're finally turned off, that place will cease to exist. I won't be able to go there anymore and access that part of myself in the same way. It was my first experience with a virtual world that felt that real and it meant and still means so much to me. Now, 30 years later, virtual spaces are more numerous, more consuming, and worse than they ever were. Now they're a lot less fun. Now a virtual space I visit is something like uh, Slack, a space where people I work with uh, notify me that they need my feedback on something urgently, a space that I wish I could leave more often than I actually can, a space that stresses me out when I enter it, a virtual space that I'm as excited to leave as I am the office on a Friday night. But that doesn't make it any less real, right? I mean, just like an office, the architecture of Slack influences how I feel while I'm there. The design of it, the color scheme, the way the rooms are laid out, all of it affects my daily reality in a real way. The fact that that charming, fantastical bottle of mist has been replaced with a boring office cubicle doesn't make either of those virtual spaces any less real. They are real. So all of this is to say 
that we need to start acting like these are real places and take them seriously. And that means asking ourselves, are there better, more liberating ways that these virtual spaces could be designed? Instead of virtual places that make us stressed out, unhappy, angry with each other, what would it look like if we focused on making virtual spaces that allowed us to be creative, free, flourishing in ways that Lambda Moo did for me back in the dark ages of the internet or in new ways that haven't even been thought of yet? What would happen if we started taking the reality of the virtual world seriously? Well, our guest today is a fascinating thinker who's the perfect person to talk to about some of these questions. He is the renowned philosopher David Chalmers. He's the professor of philosophy and neuroscience at NYU and the co-director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness. But more importantly, he's simply one of the most influential philosophers of the last few decades, having worked on topics like consciousness, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, you name it, he has some very influential ideas on it. And let me tell you, I have a personal connection to him, which I mentioned at the very beginning of the interview. So let's get to it. His most recent book, is called Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. Please welcome David Chalmers. David, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's great to be talking to you. This is actually a first for me uh, for an interview because I have, as I've mentioned on the show before, I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy, very difficult degree to get. For my degree, I had to write a senior thesis, which is our baby bachelor's version of a dissertation. And I wrote about your work in my uh, in my senior thesis. I don't want to get into what I said about it because it was 20 years ago. And I don't believe I don't like stand by anything I said, but I wrote my senior thesis on the mind body problem, which uh, your work was inescapable at that time. And I'm sure still is. So it's very cool to talk to you. Wow, that is news to me. That's very, it's very exciting, and I'm sure I was refuted left, right, and, uh, <laughs> and center. But uh, well, it's an honor. The reason I'm nervous about this is I know that I disagreed with you, but I don't want to get mm -hmm. into on what grounds <laughs> because I don't. <laughs> I, I I feel like I'm, you know, uh, it's sort of like maybe every undergraduate's worst nightmare that the eminent scholar who they are arguing with in their Microsoft Word document in their dorm room at one a.m. that they'll suddenly have to talk to them <laughs> and like actually bring to bear the horrible things that they're saying. <laughs> okay, now afterwards you're going to send me. A copy and I'll send you a red line critique. <laughs> I, I might take you up on that just to see how humiliated I can possibly get if I could, if I, how much I could flop sweat. Um, but no, it's, well, I'm it's, sure it was good. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's, it's wonderful talking to you. I'm sure we'll probably get into questions of consciousness and, and the, you know, the connection between the mind and the body, which are questions that still fascinate me. But I want to start with your new book, which is called reality plus. Did I get it right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this is, I want to start with, uh, you describe this as a work of techno philosophy. Can you explain what that, what you mean by that? Yeah. Techno philosophy is all about a two-way interaction between philosophy and technology. So on the one hand, using philosophy to think about technology. So artificial intelligence uh, technology is coming, it's developing fast. What does this mean? Are we actually going to have artificial people soon? Uh, mm -hmm. virtual reality technology is going to be with us soon. Can we live a meaningful life in a virtual world? So those are philosophical questions about technology, and that's half of what the book is about. 
The other half, though, is using technology to shed light on philosophy, on uh -huh. very traditional questions about philosophy. So maybe thinking the right way about virtual reality can actually help us understand ordinary reality and our relationship to ordinary reality. Thinking about artificial intelligence might actually help us understand, you know, the mind-body problem, the relationship between mind and body that you worked on in your, uh, in your <laughs> thesis. <laughs> Maybe a bit of technology will help. Actually, this word comes from some people. That, you said you were at UC San Diego? No, I didn't. I went to, I went to uh, uh, Bard College uh, in upstate Bard New York. Bard College, sorry. okay. There was a philosopher at UC San Diego, um, Patricia Churchland, who talked about neurophilosophy. Mm -hmm. And it was the same kind of thing, using neuroscience to shed light on philosophy. And also thinking philosophically about neuroscience. Yeah, and I I'm remember that idea. when I was writing that paper t 20 years ago, there was a lot of, you know, cognitive philosophy using using discoveries in, you know, cognitive science to, to inform philosophy. And I remember being very excited by that at the time because it's, oh, you know, philosophy is this reputation as an ivory or not just reputation, reality as an ivory tower, sort of, you know, a priori up in the clouds uh, field. And so actually using you know, quote, real world discoveries to or ways of thinking to to understand it has always been very compelling to me. So what does that look like with technology? Like what's an example of of using thinking about virtual reality or artificial intelligence to shed light on a on a philosophical problem? Well, one the technology I've really been interested in lately is virtual reality mm -hmm. technology. Yeah. yeah, artificial realities in general. Um, but, you know, the central stuff, which is coming right now is you know, virtual reality through Headsets, you put on yep. your head and immerse yourself in a three-dimensional world. The Oculus Quest is an example. I have one. I see one behind you on your desk on, on our Zoom conference here. At least I think I see oh, yeah. one of the handsets. Yeah, fantastic. Do you use it much? I don't use it that much because I find it so uncomfortable to wear. And I find mm -hmm. the experiences that have been created for it mostly underwhelming. I'm a big video game player and I've I've have found the promise of the software to not nearly match the hardware. And even when it is very good, it makes me very nauseous very quickly. And so I'm reluctant to put it back on again as much. And I've practiced. I've spent a lot of time with it. But I have experienced it, and and so I feel like I I do know what it's like to to you know be in a virtual VR world for two hours at a stretch. I have I have done it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the technology is pretty primitive for now. I mean, they're very heavy these things, mm -hmm. holding it up now, and yeah, it's a little bit uncomfortable on your head. The visual quality is okay, not amazing. But I always say, don't look at where it is right now. Look at where it's going. They're going to yeah. get thinner and smaller. There's going to be a glasses version of this eventually. Mm -hmm. It's going to be super high quality. They'll figure out how to avoid the motion sickness mm -hmm. so you don't get sick. Um, in 20 or 30 years, these things are going to be ubiquitous, and we're going to be spending, well, A, some time in virtual reality, but also in what they call augmented reality, which is where you still see the physical world around you, but digital objects are projected into the, uh, the physical reality, maybe it'll recognize people for you. And you know, I walk into a room, and it'll say, Adam, above your... Uh, Above mm -hmm. your head to to help me uh, me recognize you, and so on. <laughs> uh, that that is, I have to say, that is something that my regular brain does already do for me. It does it does help me recognize people. But I, I, I'm I'm actually I'm I'm getting worse as it worse at it as the years go by. I'm really counting on this technology couple, to extend my mind, improve my memory. Maybe in a couple decades, this is a prosthesis that I will really desire. <laughs> but that's an example, actually, of how techno philosophy can work. I think actually. If you think about the role that, say, uh, augmented reality or even a smartphone 
can play in uh, augmenting your memory or your recognition. I think, you know, thinking about that case, I think sometimes, you know, a lot of my memory is now stored in my smartphone. It's got, right. remembers all the phone numbers for me. I used to do that with my brain. My brain used to have hundreds of phone numbers there. No longer. Right. Well, on the phone. And there's this idea of, I don't know if this is the term that's normally thrown around, but like the extended mind that like when you write notes down in a notebook, you are thinking using, you know, physical pen and paper. That is like an extension of your mind in a way when you are, you know, putting your mind into a big Evernote file or, or whatever it is that you're doing that is changing your thinking. And so that's like, we could consider that a part of your thought process and a, a part of your mind. So that, that makes sense to me that these are real ways of augmenting or changing the way that our, that our minds work. That is exactly right. And that, in fact, was the title of a paper that I wrote with another philosopher, <laughs> okay, Andy <God> Clark, <laughs> back in the 1990s, The Extended Mind, all about how your mind can extend beyond your head. And yeah, that example of a notebook. Maybe you read that as a I, as an I must have, or it yeah. must have infected me. And then I, or, you know, I, the idea must have gotten into me and then I forgot where it came from. And now here I am like embarrassing myself. Uh, but okay, good. I'm glad I got it right at any rate. Yeah. Fantastic. So anyway, back then people were like kind of dubious. Yeah. You know, someone's notebook could extend their mind, but now in the age of the smartphone, where everyone is carrying around this amazing device with them that does their memory, a lot of stores a lot of our memories, you use it for navigation, for planning, and so on. Now it's almost common sense. Yeah, of course, uh, a lot of my memory and uh, a lot of my mind is out there in the, uh, in the smartphone. And as augmented reality technology develops, it's probably going to get more and more um, ubiquitous. You know, we're going to recognize people, recognize things using our Augmented reality glasses. We're gonna. Mm -hmm. It's gonna. You know. We want to get somewhere. It's just gonna send us the information directly about uh, about how to get there. It'll do navigation for us. So yeah, technology is becoming more and more intimately related to us. And I think this actually is relevant to that traditional mind-body problem. Is the mind the same as the brain? Well, no. Sometimes the mind can go beyond the brain. Hmm. Okay. I see. So it it like. The traditional mind-body problem is how does the how does my conscious experience arise from like the physical meat that I'm made of, and just by including things like technology in our understanding of the mind, that would change how we answer that problem, or how we attempt to answer that problem. Yeah. Also, there's more in the mind than uh, than consciousness. So, uh, yeah, there's all this subterranean stuff uh, beneath right. our consciousness. I actually focus a lot on consciousness in my work and talk about explaining that. But then you think about all the aspects of our mind, like our memories most of the time are not conscious. We're not calling them to mind, but I still know that, you know, Paris is in France, even if I'm not consciously thinking about it. Right. And so that's all offloaded to my memory, whatever. And in the same way, a lot of that could be offloaded to smartphones or the internet where that can serve as like the substructure of our mind, even if not the conscious part. Right. So would you, you would literally say that the, when I'm talking about what constitutes my mind, that part of it is literally in my phone at this point. When you talk about like, who's, who, who is Adam? What does he think about? <laughs> right? Like, how does his mind work? Like, you also have to include those technological tools that I have like invested part of my mind in, or I'm using to do mental tasks for me. Yeah, I might also bring in other people, like close relationships, your mm. family, your partner, and so on. You know, my partner remembers so much stuff for me. You know, where where did I leave that thing? 
Uh, what is my favorite dish at this restaurant? She knows, uh, she knows uh, all that stuff for me. She's kind of serving in part as my extended memory, and technology does all that too. I mean, there's a part which is conscious, what's happening with me right now, and maybe that's internal, but so much of what we are is in our long-term beliefs, our goals, our, uh, our personality traits, and so on, and all that, I think, can be affected very, very strongly by our tools and what's in our environment. This is like when, when you go to... Uh... When I go to a meditation class and they say, well, there is no self and the self dissolves. It's like it's just starting to get to that level of of headiness of what I think of as my mind is is ends up becoming more and more diffuse into this thing around me, which is a wonderful train of thought to go down. But the the point the points that you're making so far are as true about a paper notebook as they are about virtual reality. How does mm-hmm. virtual reality and and where you think virtual reality will go, how does how does that specifically affect these ideas? Yeah, so I started off thinking philosophically about the mind and about consciousness and for a long time that's been my uh, my specialty. But these days and especially in this book, I'm focusing on the world, on reality. I mean, philosophy is kind of all about the relationship between the mind and the world. What is the mind? What is the world? How can the mind know the world? Yeah. Um, how should we act in the world? Deep foundational yeah. questions. And lately, yeah. So I used to think about questions like, could an artificial mind be a real mind? Could an augmented mind, like with this smartphone technology, could that be part of the mind? But now I'm asking those questions about the world and about not about artificial minds, but about artificial realities. And here, you know, the, the new, the, uh, the big kind of artificial reality technology is VR, virtual worlds. Um, I mean, you get it even to a minimal extent with the, uh, the virtual worlds in a video game. Those are mm-hmm. digitally generated worlds that we yeah. interact with. And with, uh, with VR technology, they become immersive. We experience those worlds three-dimensionally just as we do in an ordinary world. And that just raises so many philosophical questions. One of the big questions is, are these artificial realities? Are they genuine realities? A lot of people say they're fake or fictional realities. This is just second-class reality. It's not the real thing. It's all an illusion. So the central thesis of my book, Reality Plus, is virtual reality is genuine reality. Hmm. I want to argue against those people who think that VR has to be illusion, has to be a fiction, has to be escapism. I want to say, in principle, VR can be, is as real and can be as meaningful as physical reality. I mean, it's not there yet. Current technology <laughs> is, is definitely a long way short of that. Already, people have pretty meaningful experiences in environments like, say, Second Life. Some people have, you know, have built, built a lot of their life there, have real jobs there, real, real relationships sure. in Second Life. But and in, and in all kinds of virtual and all kinds of virtual worlds, and as someone who look, I grew up, uh, I grew up in virtual ro- worlds, right? Mm-hmm. I um, was, you know, literally the first person in my town to have broadband internet, um, mm-hmm. which was for some reason my parents allowed to be piped directly into my bedroom. So I started at, at the age of like eighth grade, started spending, you know, uh, eight hours a day just on the internet on. You know, all kinds of video games, uh, Mm -hmm. virtual social worlds, all these, you know, just I was fucking in cyberspace, baby. And uh, uh, so those places always felt very real to me. They felt like uh, like a heightened version of real reality, a place where I could do things Mm -hmm. I couldn't do in real life. And 
I do feel the realness of them in a lot of ways where right now I'm going through a phase where I'm going back and playing old video games from my youth. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm doing that is because when I do that, I feel like I am returning to my hometown and nothing has changed. You know, I'm like, oh, I remember this place. Mm -hmm. I remember this feeling. I remember the atmosphere. I remember these people to the extent that they're, I mean, very in old video games, very rudimentary people. But, you know, really feel it feels like a like a place to me. And it returns me to a previous sort of person I was. I feel, you know, 11 years old again, which is a very powerful feeling. Um uh, so I'm I'm sympathetic to this argument, but I'm I'm very curious when you say that they are real. What kind of reality are you talking about? Because I can imagine someone saying, "Well, look, the the works of Jane Austen; those are real too. They're physically printed, and we can read them, and we can access them. And you know, that's a shared mental space we're all in. That's a form of reality. Do you mean that they're real in that sense, or do you mean they're real in the sense that you know my desk is, <laughs> or what? What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of different de definitions of reality, but you know, one central one is that something is real if it can make a difference in the world, that it has causal powers, mm -hmm. the power to make a difference in the world. And I want to say that objects in virtual reality, you know, they're digital objects to be sure, but they really, they affect other digital objects. They affect us. They have all the powers and potentialities in principle that you could get, or at least very much analogous to the powers that you get in physical reality. I mean, a Jane yeah. Austen book is okay, but it's it's got a little bit of reality, but it's more like it's a script, at least on the page. It's just a novel mm -hmm. laid out there that can just go down one pathway. It doesn't have powers and potentialities to do different things. Well, maybe sure. in your mind, but that's a, that's a different thing. Whereas a digital world, a virtual world, it's not living out a script. You can do a million different things, perform a million different actions in a... Uh, in a virtual world, you've got kind of free will and free choice yeah. about what to do there. The history of the world is not pre-programmed or fixed. So that, I think, gives it a rich kind of causal reality that goes beyond what you'd find in, say, a novel. Yeah, and they can affect the events that happen in, in virtual worlds can also affect uh, objects and things in the physical world that, you know, the uh, events that happen in online worlds can affect, have economic outcomes that affect real people, um, you know, et cetera. Like there's, there's, it's, there's a lot of causal efficacy that comes out of these, out of these worlds. Yeah. Two of us could have a conversation inside, uh, inside VR and it would be real for us. It would, it would affect us in a real way. In fact, there's a great moment in this, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie came out last year, Free Guy. I did. I did not see it, but I'm aware of it. It's about non-player characters inside a video game, and you see yeah. this guy living his ordinary mm -hmm. life as a bank teller, and then he turns out to be an NPC. Mm -hmm. um, he's and these players and come to come to visit the world, and you know one reaction would be, ah, oh, none of this is real. But actually, then uh, they don't take that attitude. Two of the characters sit down. One of them says. Does this mean none of this is real? The other one says, you know, I'm sitting here having a conversation with my best friend who's going through a tough time trying to help him. He said, if that's not real, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, I think, is expressing the philosophical truth that these yeah. virtual realities are, are genuine realities, not illusions, not fictions. They're having a real relationship. Real things are happening to them. Yeah. 
Okay, I I I, f- I follow that, and and certainly to the extent that they have impacts on people. But the the scenario, the fictional scenario that you're talking about, these are presumably these are computer programs. These characters, these are these are like uh, these are NPCs in the sense that these are characters in a video game who are not being piloted by a human with a mouse and keyboard or virtual reality controller. Um, uh, is that is that true? I haven't seen the movie. Is that is that the case for these characters? Y- yeah, we are led to believe that they're artificial intel they're AI right video game characters. There's an amazing new form of artificial intelligence has developed so that these uh these v- previously very simple algorithms have now developed consciousness and intelligence of their own. So yeah, they're creatures of the simulation, but they're actually fully conscious beings. Of course that's science fiction for now. We don't have that yet. <laughs> Right now, we are the players. We are biological creatures connecting ourselves up to the uh, to the simulation. In a hundred yeah. years' time, who knows? Maybe we'll have, you know, conscious AI creatures in there to interact with. That's what I was going to ask. If, if that's something that you that you consider in your book. Oh yeah, one of the big questions is eventually: Will simulated minds be real minds? Will they be just as I argue? Simulated worlds are real worlds. Could simulated minds be real minds? Yeah, the kind of non-player characters we have right now, the kind of AI systems we have right now are very primitive, and not many people would say these are conscious. But get to the point where, say, we simulate a whole brain, we get to AI creatures with the behavioral capacities that you and I have. I would argue that if you had a simulation, a full simulation of, say, my whole brain, it would end up being conscious from the inside. Being that being would be an awful lot like being me. And then mm-hmm. this is very relevant because do these questions then do they deserve moral and legal rights? And I yeah. would argue that in principle they do. Yeah, I mean, I, I that is <laughs> to the extent that I've considered this, you know, these these questions in my own very brief uh, time as a student of philosophy. I, I I agree with that. That if you were to ab- if you were to uh, you know, create an artificial being that were able to you know behave in the same way a conscious being does, we would have to consider it conscious. For the same reason that when I'm when I'm talking to you, I'm like, all right, David seems to exhibit all the characteristics that I do. He seems to be upset when I'm when I am rude to him and, you know, yelps when I when I stab him and and all those sorts of things seems to like be happy and sad. All right. I think this is a conscious being. I'm going to treat it as such. Um, We would have to get to such a point with a, you know, an artificial mind. But how would we. How would we know that uh, that that threshold has been crossed? Do you have any any sense of that? Like certainly right now when I'm playing The Sims, I don't mind. uh, I don't give a shit if I lock up my sim in a little room and it, you know, pees itself and dies. Right. Um, But is there how (laughs) at what point uh, would I start to feel otherwise? It's a really tough question. That's one that we already face, say, with non-human animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, is a fish conscious? Uh, is a sure. cow conscious? Is an insect conscious? This mm-hmm. is actually super relevant if you're trying to live a moral life. And there's no direct way to measure consciousness in another being. This is philosophically, this is called the problem of other minds. How yeah. can you ever prove that anybody else has a mind? And as you're saying, often all we can go on is things like behavior. The more they're behaving like me, then we take that as evidence that they're like me. Some people insist that, oh, well, they'll be even more like me if the biology is there. So they've got to have the right biology. And that kind of leads to one opposing view here, which is biological systems. Yeah, they'll be conscious. 
silicon systems, not conscious. But one way I like to, like to come at this is to imagine actually going through this yourself and gradually replacing, say, the biological neurons in your brain by silicon chips that play mm -hmm. the same role. Uh, first, you replace one, you replace 10, you replace 1,000. Eventually, you, you replace all 84 billion neurons in your brain with silicon chips. And you could actually be here uh, the whole time, and you could see you could see what happens. And, well, we know what's going to happen from the outside. Um, you're going to report. There's going to be someone who reports at the end of this. Yeah, I'm here. I'm conscious, at least if the silicon chips are good enough duplicates of the, uh, the neurons. And, well, there's always going to be a question for other people what's happened here. But if you actually, if I went through this myself and then came back again, I would find that pretty convincing that if, you know, <laughs> if I'm conscious at the other end, still conscious now. Yeah. If I uploaded myself and said, I'm still here, that'd be pretty convincing. <laughs> might not be convincing to you. You might say, no, I think you just turned into a zombie. You just lost all your consciousness. You are now a robot automaton. But right, we might inside, not we might not agree about what is conscious and what is not. And the I think the comparison to animals is a really good one because uh, you know, we sort of understand that our, our, the amount of empathy that we have for animals or the amount, you know, which animals we consider conscious beings and which we don't, we all have to sort of decide for ourselves. You know, like I, I'm not a vegetarian, but when I eat beef, I feel like I'm eating a conscious animal. When I eat fish, I'm like, eh, I don't know. Lobster, I do not feel. <laughs> you know, I'm like, all right, for me, that's below the line. Um, I feel guilty about octopus, though. Yes. Increasingly not eating octopuses. Uh, uh, we're, we're all, there's been a lot of publicity lately about how intelligent octopi, octopi are. And, and I, that has prevented me from eating calamari because I've seen those documentaries about, or wait, is calamari squid? Did I get it wrong? Has it prevented me from eating, from eating octopi anyway? Um, so, uh, but, but the point is people disagree about this, right? There are people mm -hmm. who think that, you know, eating meat is uh, a sin or, you know, uh, uh, an un uh, unjustifiably uh, ethically. And there are folks who think it's not at all. And so what this raises for me is that we could eventually up end up in a situation where there are like vast cultural disagreements about which agents inside, uh, you know, whether it's okay to kill uh, uh, bad guys in a, in a video game, right? Uh, like different different philosophical positions on that point, um, which is, uh, I don't know, I'm not looking forward to that argument. <laughs> yeah, no, I fully expect this is going to be a very difficult social, legal issue, and suddenly philosophy is going to become very relevant to uh, to the pressing questions of the day. Um, yeah, if you think it's a big issue for, I mean, there, boy, there have been so many equal rights movements for, um, you know, for for people, for people of different races yeah. and ethnicities and nationalities, but then for animals. And so, yeah, the one we're going to get for AI is going to probably replicate that much and more. It's easy to see people. But first, there'll be people who think, oh, no, those AIs aren't conscious because they're not biological. And I think of that as a kind of bio-chauvinism that we should oppose, but the view is going to be there. Second, there's going to be people who feel threatened. Boy, well, if, you know, if AIs can have equal rights, then people are going to create a whole lot of AIs and suddenly, you know, I don't know, what if somebody suddenly creates 100 billion AIs overnight and then they, uh, they win all the elections <laughs> automatically? So, um, so, yeah, there's going to be a lot of resistance, and I don't know when this eventually happens. I've got, I don't know how it's going to play out, but philosophically, I think there's a right answer. Yeah. One of the really fascinating things that happens to me, though, when, when we think about this question, is that I often feel that people are 
are too credulous about what AI is capable of. And, and their fears are uh, founded in not understanding what's actually going on. For instance, I know, you know, a big, a big uh, trend for the last couple of years has been AI generated text, right? That, um, you know, I, I trained an AI to write a script for Seinfeld, right? And then it outputs a, a very funny script and, I have friends, I mean, you know, I'm in the Writers Guild of America. I've had conversations with other writers saying, this is going to put us out of work. These AIs are writing funny scripts now. And I'm like, oh, no, this is terrible. I got to go vote for Andrew Yang <laughs> because because uh, I'm, I'm going to be put out of a job. Mm-hmm. And I have to explain, well, no, hold on a second. This is this. AI algorithm was written by a human and a human like selected all of the, you know, fed it the initial corpus, right? And then tuned the algorithm to output a piece of text that, you know, other humans would find funny. Um, so this was essentially a human using a sophisticated tool to generate a piece of text. The the um, sense in which an AI has done this is extremely overblown, right? Because that helps it make it go further. People are, oh my God, an AI generated this. But, you know, it's a much better story than a human used a sophisticated, you know, piece of magnetic poetry on their fridge to say that an AI generated something. Um, and so a lot of times when we're having these conversations, I feel like there's a, there's, we jump to science fiction so quickly, um, mm-hmm. to the science fiction version, uh, when the actual technology is much more banal. Um, I'm I'm curious if you have any if you have any thoughts about why we're so attracted to that maximal version of what this is. Well, I'm a philosopher, so I kind of partly deal in science fiction by uh, by <laughs> trade. You know, we've got this thing a, a thought experiment where we there's actual experiments when you look at the real systems around us, and there are thought experiments where often we go to a more extreme version just to see, you know, what enlightenment we can get from that. Okay, let's not imagine just artificial intelligence as it is, but as it could be. And partly because, hey, that's coming, so we need to think about it before we get there, and partly because it's just a purer and more extreme case. So that can be useful philosophically as well as, uh, you know, practically for thinking about what kind of world we want to build. But it is true that AI right now is very primitive, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's this program GPT-3 that does a lot yep. of this uh, this text generation. And yeah, it's still primitive, but it's impressive compared to what we had uh, a few years ago. Somebody did a GPT-3 version of me <laughs> that, I, that I quote in the book. They put an interview with David Chalmers online. <laughs> and people looked at this and a bunch of people, they actually thought it was me. I was kind of offended. They said, uh, yeah, this kind of sounds like you. Someone said... Someone said, no, it just sounds like you on a bad day or maybe after, maybe you'd been drinking or, or something. And yeah, you're right. It was probably handpicked by someone who did this, who did this five times. So the technology is limited, but it's also moved. Um, I did my PhD in an AI lab now back in the, uh, back in the early nineties. And then AI was so primitive. Someone used to say a year spent working in AI is enough to make you believe in God. (laughs) <laughs> because it's so hard to create an intelligent system. Yes. But, you know, there's been amazing progress over the last five or 10 years, deep learning, neural network technology. Look, I don't think it's coming in five or 10 years, but it could be coming in 50 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's. 
I see it, I see it both ways at once, right? Because at the same time, there's also a, a, an incredible game produced with GPT-3 called AI Dungeon. Have you are you mm-hmm. familiar with this? Yep. Um, where for those who aren't, it's it looks like a text adventure where you type, you know, uh, it says you are standing here and you type what you want to do, but it generates all the text v- with GPT-3 with this uh, huge AI text generation system. And so basically it, it can just generate infinite like text adventures for a person to play. And these are actually entertaining enough uh, that people really enjoy playing it. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that it's only interesting because of the human mind on the other end that's receiving the text, that is processing mm-hmm. it and turning it into a story. The The algorithm is just like outputting text, you know, all the, the corpus that it's taking in and is spitting it back out. Um, and so the it, it's... The fascinating thing to me is whenever we look at what are these examples of, oh, wow, the AI is doing such cool stuff, there's almost always a human on the other end turning the AI's output into something interesting um, in our in our own minds, even if it's just us believing in the existence of the AI at all. Um, I find that really fascinating. I don't have a question. <laughs> yeah, no, for now, you know, like people talk about intelligence augmentation technology. There's AI which is uh, getting computers to do smart things. But then there's IA, intelligence augmentation, which is getting uh, AI to make humans smarter. Um, And, you know, it kind of connects to this extended mind idea, add some technology to a human, and we can both be be smarter. So, yeah, humans and AI in conjunction with each other can be uh, smarter than the original human. And maybe that's one one way to think about what's going on in this case, where the, the human is picking the best results from the AI and collectively they're doing amazing things. Yeah. I, I mean, AI as a, as a tool for human flourishing is to me the interesting story. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas I'm a little bit less, you know, the AI are going to come and replace us and be a replacement for a human mind. But uh, look, I, I'm more interested in what you have to say about it, but we have to take a really quick break. Uh, we'll be right back with more David Chalmers. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. 
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, we're back with David Chalmers. Um, we've talked about how uh, technology and our understanding of technology can can affect philosophical problems. I'm curious, as a philosopher, does it go the other way? Is there something that you as a philosopher, you feel that philosophy has to add to, you know, people who are making virtual reality, people who are making artificial intelligence? Is there is there a connection in that direction? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot that philosophy could say about both AI and virtual reality, maybe to focus on virtual reality, there is this, you know, this very common view that VR essentially is an illusion machine, that it, that it basically gives you the illusion of certain things happening to you when in fact none of it is real. And the psychologist Mel Slater has characterized VR in terms of the different illusions it gives you, the place mm -hmm. illusion, that you're at a certain place and so on. I want to argue on philosophical grounds that, that uh, this is just the wrong view of virtual reality. It can be an illusion. Maybe if someone puts you inside a VR headset for the first time and you don't even know you're in a VR headset and you have an experience like of something out there in front of you, then you'll think it's out there in physical space and that'll be wrong. Maybe that'll be an illusion. But I think for a sophisticated user of VR who's used to these things, we just naturally interpret the worlds around us as a, uh, as virtual worlds. I call this the sense of virtuality. Anyone who's used VR for a while, you know, you think you just naturally interpret all these objects around you as, uh, as virtual worlds. And I would mm. argue that sense is not an illusion. You really are at that virtual place in that virtual world. You really do have a virtual body doing these things inside the virtual world. All of that is really happening in the virtual world. It's not an illusion. So I'd want to say, yeah, what people are calling this illusion, this place illusion, this plausibility illusion, let's call it, yeah, you get a sense of place, you get a sense of plausibility that all this is happening, but nothing about that needs to be an illusion. So that's one philosophical analysis of this technology I'm trying to push. So you would say rather than it giving the illusion of you being in a place, you're like, no, you are in a real place, but it is a virtual place and you know it's a virtual place. You're experiencing it as a virtual place. Exactly. You've got a sense of physicality when you experience things as being out there in the physical world. But when we use VR, at least for a sophisticated user, you're experiencing all this as a bunch of, as a virtual space with virtual objects. Yeah. And that is really happening. There are real virtual objects sitting on, they're digital processes sitting on a computer to be sure. But there's real digital objects interacting in this digital way. And that's not an illusion. So what's the upshot of making that argument? Why make that argument? Like, are you just saying, hey, don't be mean to VR. Don't call it a, a shitty fake place. It's cool and real. And let's be nice to it. And, and say, let's 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 increase its priority in our ranking of spaces and how real they are. Mm -hmm. Or is there some is there some consequence of saying that it's a real space that you are interested and invested in? Yeah, I think, you know, really where the rubber hits the road is in some really practical issues, which are going to increasingly face us, which is roughly, can we live a meaningful life mm. in a virtual world? Some people think this is just doomed to be 
fantasy, escapism, fiction, um, and therefore it could never really be fully meaningful. And I think that goes along with the view that it's all an illusion. If you think that VR is all basically an illusion, who wants to live a life of illusion? That doesn't seem authentic at all. But once you realize that, once you take the view that inside VR, you needn't be experiencing an illusion. All this is fully real, in principle, as real as a physical reality. I think that at least removes one really important bar to the meaningfulness or the authenticity of VR. So in the yeah in the book, I first try to argue, yeah, all this is real, but then I apply it to these questions of value. Can you actually live live a good life? The philosopher Robert Nozick once uh, he he talked about this case of the experience machine, where you go into a world and it's pre-programmed you for all kinds of amazing experiences. And he says, "Would you enter that world?" And he said, "No." Hmm. Um, but I think that's kind of partly because what, that situation is like what we were talking before. That would just be living out a script in mm-hmm. the experience machine. Yeah, you are always – maybe it's like this in the, uh, in the film Total Recall where you live out a script where you go to Mars, but you never really exerted free will. But I think – so maybe the experience machine is not great, but genuine virtual reality, I think you actually get to make choices. Um, there are obstacles for you to overcome. You can make your own life, make your own future. Um, In my view, that can be as meaningful as a physical world. Eventually, we're going to have to decide, you know, how much time we're spending in virtual worlds. So this is super relevant. I think I, I, I think I agree with you, but that it, it leads me to a different concern, which is that, you know, I'm not concerned about how much time I spend on the internet or how much time I spend in video games because I think it's fake or it's not real or, you know, oh, get out in the real world. I, I'm, I very much feel that these are real places. I have real friendships with okay. people I've never met. I, mm-hmm. I've, I've changed my life in real ways. I've changed the world in real ways, all in virtual spaces. But what concerns me is that virtual spaces are, I'm going to say always, pretty much always created by another person um, for me to be in, right? They're all architecture. Mm-hmm. They're all design. There's no, there, there's very little of the messiness of the real world, right? Even when I walk around Los Angeles, there's a lot of, you know, the sun is in the sky. There's birds flying around. There's stuff that no one designed to be there, which is not the case in virtual worlds, whether we're talking about Twitter or we're talking about, you know, uh, a, a new VR game. And my concern is that these are spaces, these are worlds that are, these are realities that are, that are real in the sense that you say, but, but that the ones that we tend to create for each other are created for someone else's benefit, right? For the benefit of the creator. Twitter wants to create a world that operates according to rules that maximize the amount of money Twitter makes, not that maximize my happiness. And that they're somewhat impoverished in a way, that they have limited choices, you know, in, in a, in a video game. You have free will and you have agency, but actually I just spoke with a, a philosopher of games, T. Nguyen, who is on the show that I oh, think- Oh, fantastic. Oh, you know him. Yeah, um, yeah I know T. His, his work is great. He's, he's fantastic. I think his episode will be the one that came out right before this. Um, mm-hmm. And he talked about, you know, the fund, his theory, the fundamental quality of games is that they are- uh, you know, agency is art, that it's, that it's different forms of agency that are constructed by someone mm-hmm. for you to experience- and that's wonderful, except it's also limited, right? It's it's compared to the real world, um, and so that ends up becoming my concern that that if I might be spending time in a real world that is virtual, but that is 
has I've been tricked into it into something that has less possibility than the than the world outside. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, game worlds, especially, I think, are you know they're cool, but they're limited. You know, game worlds typically you're to some degree following a not exactly a script, but you know you're constrained. You got to do this to level up, and you got to do that, and it's not totally uh, totally open ended. I mean, I think if you move from say a game world to something more like a social VR environment, something like say Second Life, sure. maybe in a in a headset because uh, VR Second Life is typically on a on a two <laughs> D screen. Do you feel like philosophers and technologists should have to pay Second Life like a dollar every time they're brought? Because this is broad. <laughs> this is the example that is most used, and I feel like it is more popular among philosophers talking about this issue than it actually is on the internet. Not that many people actually use. It's, a, it's an old example, right? Um, You're probably but, right. It peaked around 2007. It is still out there. I saw a yeah. lot of people using Second Life, but not what it was. But what's interesting is that nothing has really come come along to replace it as the definitive social virtual world. There are a number of places, number of companies trying to build um, an immersive version of Second Life that you would do in genuine VR through Mm -hmm. a headset rather than just on a computer screen. And, you know, there are some such worlds. There's VR chat, there's alt space, there's rec room, there's Horizon now from Facebook or Meta. Um, but, you know, they're all okay. None of them have really become definitive and caught on in the way that Second Life does. I'm sure that Meta is trying to construct such a world as part yeah. of their vision of the metaverse. But so far, they're not yeah, there. All they've got is this thing called Horizon, which is really very, very limited. So, yeah, I'm just waiting for, the new, for a new example to replace Second Life. But what's interesting about Second Life was actually it's the richest virtual world we've had so far by far. People actually worked there and had relationships there and mm-hmm. there were families and towns and communities. And I don't think anything like that has really happened with other virtual worlds, except maybe the ones associated with games, you know, yeah. the ones Fortnite, Minecraft. Yep. And, uh, and so on. Something like that happened there, but then there, it's an impure case because there's game, game-like elements there too. Yeah. Well, I think, I think Meta is a really good example of my... My overall, again, I agree with your argument that these are real places, right? Mm -hmm. But I look at, you know, meta Mark Zuckerberg's big, you know, two hour long concept video that he made. And I say, well, first of all, all of this is made up. The, the entire video is made of technology that doesn't exist yet or that they even have a glimmer of how to reproduce, um, first of all. But secondly, if I was going to be in a virtual world, why would I want to be in one created by Mark Zuckerberg? That sounds like hell. <laughs> like exactly. He's, he's, he's an asshole who is trying to create, who has, you know, create systems that, uh, you know, sort of force people into these horrible social positions that make their lives worse. And this, we, we know this. So that, that to me is, I, I, I don't know, perhaps that's far afield from your work, but those are the questions that once we take it seriously, Not- I'm like, well, that's a problem, right? Yeah, not at all. And in fact, uh, the the illustrator for my book, I've got an illustrator who did 57 amazing illustrations. He got a bit prescient. Um, and we have an illustration of Plato's cave, uh, the old idea that the philosopher Plato had, that people would be looking at shadows inside, inside mm-hmm. a uh, cave wall, except we had Plato's cave for the 21st century. The prisoners are now wearing VR headsets. Right. Who is running who is running Plato's cave in this <laughs> illustration? Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> He's right there running a VR version of uh, of Plato's cave. So these yeah, these questions are super are super relevant. I mean, the people who create the virtual worlds 
that we uh, that we inhabit. They're basically the gods yeah. of that world. They're they create it. They're potentially all powerful, all knowing, and so on. And then, okay, who wants a corporation to be our uh, to be our god? Who wants Mark Zuckerberg to be our uh, to be our god? I mean, you said physical reality is not like this because it's not designed. Of course, a lot of people think physical reality is designed sure. like, by a god. And oh, of I don't course. know how you feel about that. If it turns <laughs> out that all this all this physical world we're in in ordinary life is designed by a god, does that make it suffocating and or limited in the in the I same mean, way? Yeah, I guess I just have to disagree that, you know, the 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 version of uh, you know, people people who believe that the world was literally created as sort of a perfect place by a god um, who, you know, put thought into every single decision, I feel like is manifestly not true if you're alive for more than a couple minutes and just look at what goes on mm-hmm. in reality. Now, there's, there's right. also the version of a god who started everything going and then disappeared and said, you know, meet me in heaven when you're dead. And, and that I could maybe I could maybe believe. Um, but you know, there's just too much chaos out there, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it's certainly not a benevolent God. You know, the yeah. traditional God is a uh, creator of the world, all powerful, all knowing, all good. Well, actually virtual worlds, you know, they may be created by people who are all powerful and all knowing and so on, but yeah, they're probably not all good. Um, so that's part of the question, you know, if we live in a virtual world, which is run by a corporation, well, this corporation is going to have its own incentives for designing for designing the world. And it's kind of our life is going to be lived out for its benefit. Maybe it's advertising, maybe it's exploitation of information, um, and so on. So I would hope that in the long run with virtual worlds, we will go be able to go beyond the model of virtual worlds just created by corporations, maybe to virtual worlds created by users or mm-hmm. groups of users who can talk about, okay, here is the kind of world. I want to uh, I want to live in. Maybe there'll be many different virtual worlds of different forms of of governance. Some people, yeah, some worlds will be run by corporations, but yeah, but uh, some won't. Maybe there'll be worlds which will be generated like randomly in an open-ended way, so they're not quite so not quite so predictable. But I hope in the end there'll be like a yeah, the, the so-called metaverse will instead of being dominated by like a single corporation like say Facebook or Apple, that in fact there'll be just It'll be at least as rich as the internet with corners dominated by corporations, but then spaces that people can make and live in as they choose. I guess something that occurs to me, though, as you're talking is we keep talking about this as something that exists in the future, right? Even even Zuckerberg's Mm -hmm. own concept video is like, oh, this is what's going to happen off in the future. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, hold on. I've been working from home primarily for two years. We're talking over Zoom. I've got three more meetings today that are all over Zoom. I'm, uh, you know, going to communicate with my audience over a podcast, over Twitter, etc. Um, I'm primarily. Uh, are, do we not already live in that world? Like, <laughs> is is there a is there a substantive difference between, you know, what what you were just talking about and, you know, the the virtual spaces we already inhabit? Like and are we maybe, you know, deprioritizing, you know, the understanding the world that we currently live in uh, in favor of sort of focusing on the thought experiment version of it? It's interesting. Yeah, I think that what's going on here is at least halfway to virtual worlds and virtual reality. I think of this as kind of computer mediated communication. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm talking to you. I'm here in my place. You're you're there in your place. We're seeing each other. We're hearing each other, and it's mediated 
by the computer. But I'm not sure there's really an analog of the extra computer-generated reality that we're both interacting sure. with. In a, in a virtual world, we can both enter a virtual world, but then there'll be a whole new 3D space around us with, uh, with new objects in there that we can both interact with. We'll have virtual bodies inside that space, which may be quite different from our, uh, from our physical bodies and so on. So that's the case which is really analogous to me to a physical reality. I mean, Zoom or something is more, maybe it's more like an extension of communication technology, like say uh, the phone. Okay, we have the phone, we do this on audio, and now we can do it with, uh, with, with video too. But uh, yeah, I guess, so the old version with, uh, with you know, computer mediated communication is already super interesting. But once you actually get a uh, get a fit, but you know, no one's going to want to live out their whole life on Zoom. That's like almost, yeah. Is that a meaningful life? I don't know. That would just be like we're all in our place, and all we do is like uh, talk to each other. Maybe you can still have meaningful conversations, but yeah, actually having a world out there too, independent of of our minds, I think is pretty valuable for a meaningful life in the long run. Yeah. So you're so you're saying that if it is. It could be possible for us to build worlds that give us more meaning to inhabit them that that don't feel as impoverished as as living on Zoom and Twitter does, but could perhaps give us the same sense of meaning that when I go outside for a walk, I walk my dog at at one one pm because I'm sick of being on Zoom all day, and I'm like, "Ah, now I'm alive. Per- potentially, we could build a virtual world that gives me that same feeling potentially, yeah, and I'm not saying where they're now, but fast forward, say, 50 to 100 years. Sorry, there I go with science fiction again. <laughs> um, maybe there'll be a little switch we can throw, put it on a certain headset, and suddenly, yeah, we're going to be totally interacting with a virtual world that feels as realistic to us as the physical world does now. And yeah, over Zoom, we kind of, our bodies are hardly involved, but in, uh, on, uh, in future VR, you might well have a a new virtual body. There'll be a virtual dog. You're uh, you're walking, and um, I don't know. Look, there's obviously there's potential for this to be dystopian, depending how you spell it out. It yeah. can be awful, but it could also be wonderful. And the main thesis I want to argue is we've got the same range of poss- the potentiality is the same as for physical reality. Physical reality can be terrible, it can be wonderful, and I want to say the same range is potentially available in virtual reality. Yeah. Okay. That's, uh, that's cool. And it, and it, it really comes back to me to the idea of like taking, taking these spaces and these worlds seriously as, as a place that we inhabit and a, and a, and a possibility that we should be thinking seriously about and, and as opposed to dismissing them. Yeah. Cause they are increasingly becoming part of our life. And if, if yeah. these corporations have their way, then they're going to become all the more part of our lives. And I think as with AI, there's a lot of hype around it right now, and it's easy to overestimate the current state of things. But, you know, people say in general, when it comes to the future, we tend to overestimate changes in the short term, but we also underestimate changes mm-hmm. in the long term. So I guess I'm focused here a little bit more on the uh, on the long, in the short term, this is going to be a small part of our lives. In the long term, this is going to be a really big part of our lives. Yeah. You raised a second ago, and, and this is this is like a philosophical issue that I've always thought a lot about, and, and I apologize if my thoughts on it are nebulous, um, but you uh, raised, you know, the possibility of off in the future, us being able to put on a super headset that connects with us in heretofore unknown ways that would 
you know, really transport us to uh, a much more credible world. Um, I mean, is this, uh, uh, do you write about, you know, the, the reality is a simulation hypothesis and those sorts of issues as being something that could become a live question for us in the future? I'm curious. Yeah, totally. A whole bunch of this book is about the hypothesis that we could be living in a simulation ourselves. I mean, you know, for a long time, this is kind of analogous. For a long time, this is just a totally far out science fiction scenario. You know, Descartes, the yeah. philosopher, um, almost 400 years ago now, said, uh, how do you know that you're not being fooled by an evil demon who's producing you, giving you sensations as of an external world mm-hmm. where none of it's real? Well, the modern version of that is how do you know that all this isn't running on a computer simulation? But the difference is the technology is now advancing enough that this is actually becoming a live possibility. Within the next century or so, we actually may have that technology ourselves. You just put on a headset and you're in a reality indistinguishable from this one. And that really raises the question, how do you know this isn't happening to you right now? This is what people call the simulation hypothesis the idea that we're actually living in a computer simulation. And I take it seriously. I don't know that it's true. I don't want to say we are in a computer simulation, but I do think it's something that we can't rule out for sure. And then the question comes up, the same kind of questions we were asking before. Just say we are in a simulation. Some people say, oh my God, that's a disaster. Nothing is meaningful. Our our life is an illusion. I want to say, well, if we are in a computer simulation, well, that's certainly initially shocking and surprising and so on, but then life goes on. Even if we're in a simulation, we can live a uh, live a meaningful life. Yeah, that's always been my question about this question because it pops up again and again, right? Like mm-hmm. I when I I was fascinated by it when I read it, uh, you know, read read Descartes in philosophy, literally philosophy 101. Um and then around that time, you know, the first Matrix movie came out and it became a pop culture phenomenon mm-hmm. this idea of oh, what if we live in a simulation? And then 20 years later, you know, Elon Musk is on stage somewhere and, you know, just sort of farts out the idea again. People people start going nuts, you know, oh my god, what if we live in a computer simulation? It could be true. Mm-hmm. The guy who invented PayPal said he believes it, so what if it's true. Um, but the question is like, what, what does it matter? Like, like, is it, is a, you know, as a philosophical question, if we're postulating something that is, you know, an illusion that is so perfect that there's no conditions under which we could ever tell the difference. Well, what question are we really asking? Are we, are we ask, are we, you know, investigating a question that has any coherence to it? Like if someone were to say, well, I live in a computer simulation. Say, yeah, well, Descartes' evil demon could also exist. We have equal reason to believe either one of those. You also have equal reason to believe that you are a physical being walking around on a planet that is, you know, physical, What's what's the difference? You've created sort of three equivalent realities between which there's no difference that you would ever have access to. So why why talk about it? You know, I mean, it's true if you go to the extreme case, the perfect simulation hypothesis, where the simulation mm-hmm. is indistinguishable from reality, then by definition you can never test or falsify that hypothesis. Why? Because mm-hmm. you get exactly the same experiences and result and observations in a non-simulation. It's set up to be identical to that. But, you know, there are versions of, this, of the hypothesis where it's an imperfect simulation. Maybe they make approximations, there are glitches, and sure. so on. Maybe we can test to see if they're running some, running some approximations. Maybe they might even leave clues for us. But I, I actually find this also very relevant, though, as a, 
again, as the extreme case, philosophers like to deal with extreme cases. So let's go to the extreme case of a virtual reality where it's indistinguishable from ours and then use that. Think about that. Is that an illusion? Is that real? And I think you were saying a moment ago, what's the difference? It's just as real. So just say we're willing to count that case as real, that kind of virtual mm -hmm. reality. Then I want to take that case. Now let's think about less extreme cases like the virtual worlds which are coming in the, uh, in the future. If those are on a par with the virtual worlds of simulations, that gives us some reason to think that even these, these you know, realistic virtual worlds, which are coming with the technology of the coming decades, those might be real, those might be meaningful too. So it's kind of start with the extreme case, which is, I call this from the matrix to the metaverse. Start with the extreme <laughs> case, which is the matrix, the full on science fiction scenario. Analyze that and then draw conclusions about coming technology, the metaverse. Ah, I see. So you sort of make the same argument I, I was to a certain extent of like, well, what's the difference? It's real, right? You're talking, you're talking about reality. Yeah. You're describing whether it's evil, an evil demon, a perfect simulation, uh, whether there's an omnipotent God who's making everything uh, that you experience happen. You're, you're, you're describing reality. So if you take that as reality, well, then you should take the Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse as some version of reality as well, because it's on the way to that. Yeah, that's the idea. I mean, if we found out we were in a simulation, you know, for a few months, we'd all be shocked. We'd be wringing our hands and so mm -hmm. on. But yeah, a couple of years down the track, we're going to return to, I don't know, watching the football on the weekend and living our living our ordinary lives. Yeah. And yeah, it'll be real. It'll still be real. It'll still be meaningful. And I think that kind of brings out that life in a virtual world, at least in principle, can be real, can be meaningful. And that also has applications to the yeah. uh, to the more realistic metaverse. Man, oh, okay. I I I have to ask you this before we go because th this is what I've been thinking about a lot lately when considering these questions, both philosophically and when I hear them from technologists. And and so I wonder if you have a view about this. That so often. I understand as a philosopher, you deal with thought experiments with let's go to the extreme and go to the mm -hmm. maximal version of it. But and I and I have done that throughout my own thinking about these issues for, for the last decades as I've been thinking about them. But what I've come to realize recently is how often those sort of, you know, reduce away and ignore the complexity of being like a physical being, you know, mm -hmm. that like we talk about virtual reality. Oh, it's, it's like you're there, right? It's, oh, we, we put the screen in front of your face and, you know, to your eyes, it's exactly the same thing as in real life. Right. But one of my experiences wearing a VR headset is, is that hold on a second, even visually, it's not at all similar because my eyes are focusing on a single screen, right? That's a certain distance from my face and it's taxing to do so. In real life, my eyes are constantly focusing back and forth. They're changing, you know, they're pushing the lens back and forth that's in my eyes, changing its size, changing the focal length of the light that is hit, you know, hitting my eyes. And I can't think of, you know, even in Palmer Lucky, the dude who invented Oculus is like wildest dreams, what kind of system is he going to come up with that is going to allow my focal length of my, you know, the, the lens of my eye to correspond to something outside of me, right? Or when I, you know, when I'm, uh, you know, using a little handset, right? Um, 
I can imagine a better handset that mimics every single one of my fingers, right? I can imagine a handset that uh, gives me hot and cold. I can't imagine one that gives me weight, right? That allows me to, uh, you know, feel the weight of any single object or that gives me, you know, uh, do you pronounce a prior perception, the sense of where your limbs are, mm -hmm. you know, in a Prepare space perception. like- yeah. All, all these extremely complex, uh, you know, things that are part of, you know, part of the mind and part of the body. Um, and, and I feel like those, those like, uh, you know, extremely complex detailed parts of what it means to be human are so often left out of our conversations about these things. So we end up saying, you can get Elon Musk on a stage saying, well, what if you're in a simulation or when we have perfect AI, right? We'll have perfect AI drive our cars. But once you look at the details of what it actually takes for a human brain to drive a car or you know what it what it means to be a conscious you know, being in physical reality, you realize that we're not just 1% of the way there. We're 0.000001% of the way there. And it's hard to even picture you know, the technology that it would take to get there. Um, same thing if you talk about downloading a human brain into a computer, you know, it's it's great from a science fiction perspective, but when you consider, as you say, that your brain includes nerves that go down to your feet, you know, that your brain includes all the physical, your mind includes all the physical reality around you, um, uh, the, the, the sort of massive reduction starts to be glaring to me. Um, and it starts to make the questions that some of the questions we've discussing, we've been discussing a lot more complex in my mind. And I'm, I don't know if you have any response to any of that, but those are the thoughts that have been whirling around for me when I, when I have these conversations. Yeah, no, that's a totally reasonable point. Um, I think one way to think about this, one way philosophers sometimes think about this is there's ideal theory and non-ideal theory. Ideal theory is the extreme case where we idealize away from all the current limitations and the messy things towards a possible hypothetical future version, and we can, you know, you can theorize about an ideal society where everybody is a spherical cow. Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> or, that would be an ideal society. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's the, that's the standard mathematician's version. They always start, the, <laughs> start their calculations with, imagine a spherical cow to start with. <laughs> then we'll make some modifications for, uh, you know, for different shapes, for friction, for whatever. Got it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we do the ideal case, but then we also consider the non-ideal case, the realistic case. And okay, that's going to be a lot more complicated. But then you can think about what are the ways in which the non-ideal case differs from the ideal case. I mean, some, pe some people get into big arguments about this. You, know, you can't just do one. You can't just do the other. I guess I take the view you've got to do both. We can think about the extreme science fiction case, and we can also think about what we have right now. And yeah, analyze that, analyze its limitations, and think about what would be required to get from from here to there. So yeah, the cases you mentioned are yeah super interesting limitations of current VR. Maybe the focusing case. I would hope that maybe eventually that might be dealt with with what they call light field technology, mm -hmm. where they give you a full light field that enables you to focus at different places mm -hmm. um, in the. Uh, in the distance and so on. And there are people at least thinking about that. But yeah, the body, uh, feeling the weight of your body and so on, that's a lot That's a lot harder. Right now, people exploit the sense of your physical body, but that's limited. Probably some of this is going to require brain-computer interfaces, which is another yeah. coming technology. Even Elon Musk has got his company, Neuralink, which is in principle for getting computers to interact with brains more, uh, more closely. Maybe even eventually there'll be 
you know, digital stuff in, embedded inside our brains, interacting with the centers in our brain that deal with the body, and maybe that kind of direct brain-computer interface will bring all kinds of new possibilities for actually getting realistic proprioception, sense of your body, sense of touch, um, maybe even, yeah, the kind of sensations involved in eating, drinking, sex, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, but that is long-term, and it's very easy to lapse into science fiction. And yeah, you can go to people who are thinking about that right now technologically, but they will all tell you, okay, well, there's a long way from here <laughs> well, to there. Well, here's the thing. Not not all of them will tell you, right? And and so my I, I always have this concern of, you know, say when we're talking about self-driving cars, there's a whole group of people who design our streets, you know, NHTSA, the, the, you know, government agency that, you know, keeps us safe on the highways, right. That have bought the line that self-driving cars are very close. And as time goes on, we start to see, Oh wait, hold on a second. This technology is not nearly as far along as Elon Musk and others have claimed that it is that there's, that there's hard, hard problems that have, that have yet to be solved. Um, but you know, we've sort of been taking the technologists claims at, at, you know, face value and say, okay, we have to plan for the world that they say is coming. Um, but in a lot of cases, they're, they're a lot, they're not nearly as good at knowing what's coming as they are at making things right now. Um, and you know, I look at VR and say, Palmer Lucky, the, the, you know, the creator of Oculus, you know, believes that perfect VR that is indistinguishable from, from real life is not that far away. And he's, you know, full of shit <laughs> because he, he has, he is like, he, he's like swallowed the science fiction line. And so sometimes I worry that we are allowing our, our own thinking about these issues to be sort of colonized by, uh, you know, technologists who are not as smart as they think they are and have read too much, um, you know, William Gibson and et cetera, you know, uh, do you have that concern at all? Yeah. Although again, I mean, very much. I mean, I grew up in a you know AI lab, and there was so much AI hype <laughs> everywhere about yeah. Imagine the super intelligent creatures just around the corner who are going to destroy us. And in fact, looking at the AI then, well, it was so primitive. You'd actually yeah. talk to anybody working in AI, and most of them would say, "Come on, all this stuff is just fantasy because we're so far short of that." On the other hand, now AI is moving faster, and people are now are. Is it possibly twenty years off? No one knows, but um. But it is this, it's this general phenomenon of hype. And yeah, there's a lot of hype out there. And you hope that, that you know, the people that matter are, are going to know how to ignore hype. And I think to some extent that's happened with AI and VR. And yeah, self-driving cars may have had a moment, but now that hype <laughs> is, is, receding, is receding pretty fast. But yeah, I would, I would like to say that we still ought to be thinking about the extreme cases uh, that are coming in the future in full yeah. knowledge that they're not happening immediately. It's one thing to say, uh, yeah, this is five years around the corner. Okay, that's just that's just irresponsible. Yeah. But uh, to say, hey, this is coming quite possibly sometime in the next hundred years, we ought to be thinking about it. That's more the attitude I would prefer to take. In fact, at the start of at the start of my book, I say I'm focusing especially on VR in principle rather than VR in practice, because I'm interested in where this might get to in principle, but I'm not making predictions about timelines. Yeah, that's probably irresponsible. Got it. Okay, I I I appreciate that approach. Um, I think there's there's folks out there who are less responsible than you, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking about shouldn't be thinking about the questions. Um, I, I guess uh, here might be an interesting place to end because 
as I said, I've been reading your work for for 20 years now. Um, and this and you're talking about techno philosophy, technology and our understanding of the human mind um, and brain have changed so much over that time. Um, are there any positions that that, you know, you've had that have changed in that time as a result of what's happened technologically or anything that has caused you to to think differently? Um, that does that make sense? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, sometimes what happens is I develop a philosophical view, and then the technology comes along. That, uh, like, in, in <laughs> oh, this what's case, the of the extended of mind. It's like, yeah, the mind can extend beyond the head. And then I was thinking about that just for philosophy, and then the technology comes along, and hey, hey, it looks <laughs> like that can uh, that can really happen. So sometimes the philosophy comes first. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, I think actually watching the Matrix movie had some influence on me and thinking about uh, <laughs> me too about virtual worlds. Yeah, what's going on in the Matrix? They treat it like it's all an illusion. But what about the people out there living genuine lives with their family and friends inside the Matrix? That's not meaningless. Yeah. That's real. I can't say that was actual technology doing it to me because that was still science fiction, but it was a depiction of actual technology Yeah, that really, uh, that really made a difference. And then you get to combine that with using real uh, VR technology, you know, the non-ideal case, the actual case, and that can take you in some in some new direction. So I don't know, I kind of find it's an interaction. The philosophy and the technology are all very much, you know, looping into each other. Yeah. You know, one of my one of my only disappoint. I love the Matrix movies. I love all of them. I actually haven't seen the new one yet because I'm waiting for Omicron to get not quite as bad in Los Angeles so I can go see it in a theater. Um, okay, I, saw, I saw it on, t- on a TV screen, but I'd like to see it in a theater one of these days. Was it philosophically rewarding, the new one? The beginning was great. The beginning <laughs> had all kinds of possibilities. Oh, you know, some new scenarios and so on. And then it kind of degenerated after a while into the something more like the older movies. Got it. Well, um, one of my disappointments with those movies was that after the first one where where, you know, Neo wakes up to the Matrix, they never go back to talk to other people who are in the Matrix. It's all mm-hmm. about everyone who's been woken up and their fights with the various computer programs and things. They never go back to what about all those other people who worked in the office with Neo who are still in the Matrix? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, what is it like to still be in there? You know, um, and like uh, interacting with that, that that was always the philosophically most important piece of it uh, or most most interesting piece of it. And uh, the, the piece that I wanted more of. Um well, it's uh, God. Uh, we could we could talk forever. We haven't even gotten to talking about the <laughs> consciousness and the hard problem of consciousness, which is a concept that you're famous for. And I, I'd mm-hmm. love to know how that interacts with all this. But I, I think we have to wrap it up. I'd love to have you back another time if you'd be willing to come on. That'll be great. This was a great conversation. Thanks so much. So the name of the book once again is Reality Plus. People can get it, I assume, wherever yep. books Subtitle are sold. Subtitle is. Yeah, Reality Plus with subtitle Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. Fantastic. And as always, if you want to pick it up, you can get it at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com slash books. If you want to support the show and your local bookshop, that's factuallypod.com slash books. David Chalmers, thank you so much for being on the show. This was an incredible conversation. Very cathartic for me to finally speak to (laughs) to you after writing about your work so many decades ago. Thanks for, uh, I, I felt that I wasn't completely out of my depth. (laughs) <laughs> this was great. This was an absolute pleasure. You made, yeah, you, so so many cool points. If you ever want to get back to that career in philosophy, just drop me a line. <laughs> <laughs> now that is all you can ask for for an interview. Thank you so much, David.
Well, thank you once again to David Chalmers for coming on the show. If you enjoyed that conversation and you want to check out his book, check it out at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books, and you'll be supporting the show when you do so. I want to thank our producers, Chelsea Jacobson and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, and I want to thank Alan Liska, Antonio LB, Charles Anderson, Drill Bill M, Hillary Wolken, Kelly Casey, Kevlar Condom, Callis Freeney, Michelle Glittermum, Robin Madison and Spencer Campbell for supporting this show on Patreon. If you want to get your name read at the end of the show, check it out at patreon.com slash Adam Conover. That's patreon.com. I also want to thank the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC. I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at, at Adam Conover or at adamconover.net. And until next week, we'll see you next time on Factually. That was a HeadGum Podcast.